It's good to be here with you guys and uh, to be here with my mom and dad. I'm a bit of an unfamiliar face around these parts uh, recently, at least in the past few years, um, but I'm super excited to be here. And I used to be extremely close with this church family, being a member here, then I went off to college. And now I'm at a different church in Indianapolis, um, working there as a pastoral resident. And a couple weeks ago, Micah asked if I would come back and surprise mom and dad for uh, their send-off here. So that's what we're here to do today. And there wouldn't be a better way to do it without saying the words, open your Bibles. Some of the most important words at this church, open your Bibles. You can open them up to 2 Corinthians 3. Going to be looking at a few verses in that chapter today. 2 Corinthians 3. And the reason I chose this passage and really this entire book is it has a lot to say about ministry. 2 Corinthians tells us so much about Christian ministry and who is fit to participate in it. In many ways, Paul serves an example to us and to pastors and ministers as how to operate in service to God. And so today, as we celebrate what both my mom and dad have done in the past 13 years at this church, I thought it'd be appropriate to look at this book and remind ourselves of what kind of person is actually fit to participate in ministry. You know, I'm actually pretty new to this whole preaching thing. I've only uh, done a couple different sermons on Sunday mornings and the, the first one it was okay, you know, no, not too high, not too low. I didn't, uh, there wasn't a great revival, but I also don't think there was any heresy. And so that was kind of the line I was shooting for somewhere in there. And I think I hit it um, pretty well. And second one felt about the same, no heresy, no great revival. And I, I was doing all right. But I got this email that came through my inbox um, a couple days after my second sermon. And this was the subject title of the email. It said, what gives you the right to preach? I was like, oh, I honestly, I don't know. I was a little nervous. I started racking my head with all the worst possible scenarios of why I would receive this email. Someone had deemed me unworthy of being a, a pastor, maybe unworthy of preaching, and my sermon must have been terrible, so they wrote an angry email so after I got over these initial thoughts, initial turmoil and questioning in my head, I found the courage to open up the email and face whatever angry person had sent it to me. But it turned out the email was actually from a Christian organization known as the Gospel Coalition. And all it was was an article titled, <laughs> What Gives You the Right to Preach? And it was a great article about, uh, about pastors and preachers building their character uh, for the work of ministry. And I uh, was extremely relieved, as you might guess. But that question still stayed with me a little bit. And I still think about it every once in a while, even today. It's actually really similar to a question that Paul asks in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, just a couple of verses before what we're going to be looking at today. He asks the question, who is sufficient for these things? these things being ministry, participating in ministry. So who is sufficient for these things? Well, that's the question that we're gonna answer and chapter three answers it for us in a couple of different ways. So what we're gonna look at today is three observations 
of someone fit for ministry. Three observations of someone fit for ministry. Let's go ahead and start reading in verse 1. We'll read through verse 3 together. It says this, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The first point is this, from these first three voices or verses, one who is, whose message brings life. The first observation of someone fit for ministry is one whose message brings life. And in these verses, these first three verses, Paul begins stating his argument for why he is someone and has been someone fit for ministry over the past couple years. And while he doesn't go straight to a list of qualifications like he gives in 1 Timothy or in his letter to Titus, he actually appeals to his audience as the reason that he is fit for ministry because of who they are and the work that he's done among them. Paul says that he doesn't need a letter of recommendation to tell the people whether or not they should listen to him and, follow, or, and allow him to minister to them. He says that the people actually are functioning as his letter of recommendation. Or as one commentator puts it, the very existence of the Corinthian church testified to the effectiveness and authenticity of Paul's ministry. So what Paul is saying in these verses is that he has proven himself to be a faithful minister because of the people he has ministered to. The life change that he's witnessed in that church within, uh, within that church testifies to the fact that Paul has been a faithful minister of the word. Now we have to clarify here that we're not saying Paul is one who changed the lives. He's not the agent of change. What we are saying is that Paul has carried a message about another one who has changed the lives of the people. And the fact that Paul was faithful to proclaim that message over and over, that message of the gospel, he has become an instrument in God's hands to minister to God's people. Paul's message was always the same, and it always had the same effect. Paul's message was always the gospel, and it always gives life. This is what makes him fit to be a minister of God to the people. And this is what makes ministry distinctly Christian, is that the message that it promotes is the message of the gospel. Dad, I still remember from a young age you preaching to me your simple definition of the gospel that you've preached here for 13 years. And uh, when many other preachers have veered to preach messages to bolster their brand, you remain faithful to the trustworthy word as taught. And you preach the gospel so much that it created a culture of the gospel here that it just wasn't right that we didn't have the word gospel in the name. <laughs> so we had to change it. The simple definition of the gospel that you taught me at a, long, at a young age is the same definition that I used in my first Bible class at college. 
and one that I still teach to others today. You all have probably heard it as well. Um, if you know it well enough, you could say it with me, that Jesus Christ died on a cross in my place as a substitute for my sin. I was gonna save some of the tears for later, uh, <laughs> but maybe they're coming soon, so that's okay. Um, you've never stopped preaching this message, and I know even after you leave, you still won't. Both you and mom have done everything you could to get the gospel into us as a family and into this church family as well. One example of this um, is when I was in like seventh or eighth grade, uh, we found a video of a, um, it was a, a spoken word on the gospel. Um, and it was like an eight and a half long video. And you told me that if I memorized it and said it back, that uh, you would give me 50 bucks. So <laughs> I was like, hey, that's a great deal. To me at that time, that was like a zillion dollars, I'm pretty sure. And uh, so I got to work. Over hours I would listen to uh, this, this message of the gospel over and over. So much that I would just put it in my headphones and fall asleep to it um, at night. And, uh, you know, it probably uh, wasn't worth all the time. I was probably only making like 75 cents an hour. Um, but, but I understood the gospel, and that was the main point, and it was worth it. That's how much I can't do it now. <laughs> I don't even know if I ever said it to you, but that's okay. I, I, know, I still remember the acronym, so I could tell you that later. Um, this is how much you have valued the gospel and the message of it. You have instilled that value in me and in this church, and your time here has been effective because you've never stopped preaching it. Um, I have a friend who likes to say that memorizing scripture is all about getting it in your bones. You gotta get it in your bones so it becomes a part of you. And I feel like that's what you've done um, here at this church. Uh, the gospel is in the bones of this church. It's in the walls. It's, it's just everywhere. The gospel has been of first importance to you, and I thank you that you've modeled that for me. Similar to Paul in these verses, you guys don't need a letter of recommendation from anyone here in the congregation or on staff. Everyone here would write you a great one, I'm sure that what's even better than that is all the evidence of life change that you've been a part of because of your preaching and teaching of the gospel. This body of believers here this morning testifies to the effectiveness of you serving here because you have always proclaimed the message that brings life. And there's so much life change in this room this morning because of your faithfulness and bold preaching of the gospel. You guys have proven to be fit for ministry because your message has brought life here. That's not the only point here though. Paul continues this, answering this question of who is fit for these things in the next couple of verses. Read with me in verses four through six. It says, such is the confidence 
that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The second person that's fit for ministry is one whose confidence is not in themselves. One whose confidence is not in themselves. Paul's next couple of verses here explains how he, a flawed, sinful man, can have confidence to proclaim the message that gives life. If we observe Paul's ministry throughout Acts, throughout his epistles, we would see that he's never one to hold anything back. He's always full of confidence, always preaching in boldness, always writing in boldness, never wavering really between theological beliefs. It seems that he's always preaching as hard as he can with as much courage as he can. He never cared about the repercussions of that preaching ministry. Even though those repercussions and consequences would be imprisonment, exile, he never held anything back. But why? It's not because he was a a great guy. He had a history of murder. It's not because he was one of the 12 disciples and physically got to walk with Jesus. It's not because he had a million Twitter followers. I know, shocking. It was because he was reliant on Christ. In fact, Paul never would have told you about his ministry. Not because it wasn't he wasn't participating in ministry, but because he didn't own any ministry at all. He was just participating in Christ's ministry. And that is a ministry to be confident in. This is why Paul is able to say in verses five and six, our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. There is no one who is sufficient for ministry without Christ. This may seem like an obvious statement, but the reality is there are so many pastors, preachers, ministers who try to do that task without God and without relying on him. This church has been blessed with many great pastors whose only strand of confidence is rooted in the fact that they're rooted in Christ. And if I am not in Christ right now, even at this very moment, you guys would have no reason to even trust anything that I was saying, or I would have no reason to trust anything that I was saying. Faithful pastors and teachers are ones that recognize they have no reason to be confident unless their sufficiency is from God. One pastor named Jared Wilson, he wrote a book called The Pastor's Justification, and he has this to say about pastors. The pastoral fraternity is an interesting one, We are a motley bunch of fools. Different personalities and tribes, different methodologies and styles, not to mention denominations, traditions, and of course, theologies. But there is something both lay elders and career elders have in common. Something I've seen in the 30-year senior pastor of a southern megachurch, as well as the bivocational shepherd of a rural New England parish the laid-back, faux-hawked church planter, I'm supposed to point at my dad, and the fancy, moose-haired, charismatic, maybe Micah could fit that, (laughs) and in nearly every pastor in between. 
A profound sense of insecurity. A profound sense of insecurity for which the only antidote is the gospel. Every single pastor faces the dilemma of his own insecurity. And the only hope for this, the only hope for the insecure pastor to stand up and preach with boldness is if he believes that the gospel is not just for the people he's preaching to, but for himself as well. This is what makes someone sufficient, competent, fit for ministry. Mom and dad, you too are not sufficient to be a pastor or a director or speaker at Family Life or to do any type of ministry unless your sufficiency is found in someone else, in Christ. I've seen you anchor yourself in that before you take the stage to preach. I've seen you both reading your Bibles early in the morning and journaling to make sure that you rehearse the gospel to yourself before you teach it to others. And you've challenged me to do the same. You've challenged this church to know scripture. And for that, we want to thank you. Dad, a lot of the time you make preaching look easy, but I know it's not. (laughs) I know you wrestle with the difficult task of bringing a message week by week and striking the balance between encouraging and convicting. I know there are plenty of late Saturday nights where you'd rather be watching college football and struggle to find the right words to say in your message. But you always minister with confidence because you know that it is God who makes you competent. You've never tried to minister out of your own ability but always relied on him to make you sufficient. Church, my parents have uh, nothing to teach or preach to you that is their own message. They do not claim to say anything coming from themselves, as verse five says, because they are not sufficient in themselves, but their sufficiency is from God. The good news is that when they leave, because they have not preached their own message, the message here will stay the same. Whoever fills their roles will not have a different message than Pastor Trent. And I believe that this church will not stumble because the message and proclamation of the gospel won't change. Whoever preaches next month or the month after that should have the same confidence because it is God who makes ministers sufficient. The one who is fit for ministry proclaims a message that brings life and finds their confidence in Christ. And they also give all glory to God. That's our last point. It's one who gives all glory to God. This comes from verses 7 and 8. It says this, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, carved in letters on stone, came with such a glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face, Because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? These verses, at first, they kind of sound a bit confusing. So, what is Paul talking about? Well, he's referring to the time when God met with Moses on Mount Sinai to give him the Ten Commandments. And Paul calls this ministry the ministry of death. 
Not a great ministry. <laughs> not a great ministry title. And I don't know about you, but I'm not signing up to be a part of the ministry of death. <laughs> but he calls it this because he's contrasting it with the ministry of life. This old ministry is now different or is now gone because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And with that, he ushers in a new ministry, the ministry of life, the ministry of the Spirit. I know you guys have been studying the book of Acts recently, and that's really what Acts is all about, is what is happening as the ministry of the Spirit is ushered into the world. So Paul sets up this contrast and says that the old covenant was a ministry of death, yet it still came with glory. It's a bit peculiar. And if a ministry of death came with glory, then how much more so will the ministry of life come with glory? Pop quiz real quick. Do any of y'all remember or know what the first message that my dad preached here was on or about the text, anything like that? It was a long time ago, so it's okay. It actually was on this idea of glory and this idea of glory even during the ministry of death, as Paul calls it. Back in Harvest Bible Chapel Granger in February of 2008 was this first message on Exodus 33 and 34 about the glory of God that Moses experienced when God met with him. The sermon title was called Pleading for the Presence of God. It's a great sermon title, and it was a great sermon. It really was. It's a little long, though. <laughs> I don't know what preacher thought anyone was going to come back <laughs> to hear him the second time after he preached almost an hour for his very first sermon, but you all came back, so somehow you pulled it off. Way to go. The idea of that first message was that this church would not go anywhere that the presence of God was not going to go because we wanted God's glory to remain in the church. Personally, I don't think God's glory has left this church or ever left this church because Gospel City has been all about the ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit is the ministry of life, new life that comes from the regeneration of hearts and faith and repentance of sin. That's what this church has been all about. Mom and dad, that's what you guys have been all about. This church, the people in this church have created so much glory for God. God's glory has remained here. And what you've talked about in that first sermon, dad, your vision and goal for this church has really come to be. It's really played out. And I just want to say that you've stewarded God's glory well here. So if the glory hasn't left, where does it go? What do we do with it? There's only one right answer to this question. If there is any glory that is produced in this church through the ministry of the Spirit, it should go to God. And it's our job to make sure that He gets it. And no one should claim it as their own. And you guys haven't done that. You guys have remained very humble here. 
You guys are two extremely humble people. And dad, I don't think I know a single person who would describe you as arrogant or proud. Maybe one or two, maybe. Mom, I definitely don't know anyone (laughs) who would ever in a million years describe you as humble or proud. Or, sorry, (laughs) as proud or arrogant. Got my words mixed up there. A couple examples of this. A couple months ago, I was writing an article for my church in Indianapolis about how to encourage your pastor. And I figured I needed to interview someone and it turns out I just, I actually know a pastor. Um, So I texted my dad and I asked him, what is the most encouraging thing that your church does for you? I was expecting him to say something along the lines of thanking him for a good sermon or reaching out to tell them that he's really impacted their life or changed their life in some way. Instead, all he said to me was, when they encourage my wife. Dad, you continually seek to put others first and live a lifestyle of self-sacrifice. And mom, there's no way for us to count how many meals you've taken to people when they need them on your own time and money. You've sat and listened to so many people, so many people that have benefited from your wisdom and your grace. And you both do these things and so much more without stealing any of the glory that belongs to God. You're two of the most humble people and accomplished people I know. Those two don't go together. Neither of you wanted to plant a church because you wanted your name to be known or you wanted to people to come thank you. You did it so that God would get more glory. And you did it so that people would know that there's a God who loves them. Ironically, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is all about who gets the credit in church ministry, specifically in church planting. If you've ever wondered who should get the credit around here for a nice new building or fun trips to camp or even baptism, this is the passage you should look at. Paul is writing again and he is setting a, settling a dispute about who should be esteemed higher, him or his friend Apollos, another pastor and preacher. This is what he says in verse 5, 5 through 7. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I, Paul, planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. 
you both are content with serving and not receiving any of the praise. And I honestly don't know how you do that, but I'm glad that God gets the praise and gets the credit around here. One pastor described being in ministry and in service to God this way. If we are truly servants of Christ, we are simply what I like to call errand boys for Jesus, giving out his divine gifts for healing and strengthening of those we serve in his name. It's a humbling title to be an errand runner for God, but it assures that all the glory goes to him. Mom and dad, you too have been fit for ministry. You have proclaimed a message that brings life. You have found your confidence in the gospel and you have been, or you have given all the glory to God. And doing these things has made you extremely fit for ministry. Specifically, a perfect fit for this ministry here at Gospel City. You have served here faithfully, you have loved abundantly, and you have led courageously. You've set a great example for me and everyone here in this church on what it looks like to love God and love others. Church, I know I've kind of been preaching a little bit to you guys and a lot to my parents, um, but can I exhort you to do two things with this message? The first one is I want to encourage all of you to serve the Lord. And do all that you can to make yourself fit for ministry. That specifically, the ministry that God wants you to participate in. Ministry is not just for pastors or those who went to seminary. Ministry is for Christians, every Christian. You can follow the example of Paul and others in Scripture and become fit to participate in the ministry here at Gospel City at a local church. And second, would you do this? Would you reach out to my parents to let them know that you love them? So many times uh, my dad dismisses this church uh, by saying that you are loved. And I know they'd like to hear it back, and they, they do. A couple of ways that you could let them know. If you get the chance to talk to them, them in person, that'd be great. But if not, um, send them an email or write them a letter. It would go a long way. I know it would be super encouraging for them as they prepare to move. Mom and dad, I'm going to exhort y'all as well. First, as you leave this season of church ministry, please don't take long to jump into another church and serve there. You guys have too much experience, too much wisdom to not share with the local church. And you are the perfect couple to come alongside another pastor and pastor wife to encourage them because you know how much they need it. And second, when you start working in your new position, keep giving all the glory to God. Rejoice in the Lord for all the work that you have seen him do around you and through you and praise him because of it.
Thank you guys for everything that you've done here at this church. I know that God has been glorified in your time here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that tells us about the message that brings life. You have proclaimed the name of your son to us so that we might know that we can have an eternal life with you. You've shown us your love to us by sending your son to die on a cross in our place as a substitute for our sin. And Lord, for that, you deserve all the glory. Anything good that happens here, we should turn to praise to you. We thank you for the ways that you've empowered this church, empowered the pastors, the leadership here to continue making that message known and including this church family in it as well. Lord, I pray that you would continue to make us people fit for ministry so that we could participate in the work that you want to do here on earth. Lord, give us confidence in Christ to rely on him to proclaim your message. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.